there is an absolute understanding and growing consensus that there is a lot of harmful content online and we can't get rid of it all how can we identify those people in that harmful space who are actually most at risk of doing something offline and it's a huge challenge um but if we can go some way or contribute towards that then that would be very satisfying for me welcome to the research for good podcast i'm david ellis and today i'm going to be talking to dr olivia brown it's really nice to have you uh, on the podcast love thanks david yeah it's really nice to be here Liv, you're a lecturer at the University of Bath in Organisation and Behaviour. To start off, can you tell us a bit about how did you how did you get here? Um, so I did a, a psychology undergraduate degree. Um, I guess like many people doing psychology undergraduates with the with the view to potentially doing clinical psychology afterwards. Um, but it got to third year and we sort of started to have more optional modules. Uh, and I remember doing one on um, terrorism and conflict, and it just absolutely blew my mind that as a psychologist we could be working in that type of space, or that there was kind of value or potential to be a psychologist doing research in. In that space. Um, so it was kind of that module that sort of changed my career trajectory, if you will. Um, decided to do a master's uh, and then I guess through that I was kind of umming and ahhing whether to go for kind of more industry focused, maybe security research type jobs or whether to kind of carry on and do a PhD. Um, midway through the masters there was some uh, crest phds that i noticed so crest being the center for research and evidence on security threats um and i, I guess reading that reading about the center it just really got me kind of excited so that was sort of what pushed me over the edge into making that decision to, to do a phd initially i was tasked to look at kind of goals and how emergency response agencies manage different goals across teams so if you imagine police might have different goals to to ambulance um, when I sort of looked into the area a bit more, I, I kind of wanted to make it a little bit broader. So I actually looked at teamwork um, in extreme environments, I guess, as a more kind of broader category. So some of my work was with expedition teams and some of the research was with emergency response teams. Um, and I suppose looking at that area and looking at this kind of extreme high pressure, high stakes environment, there is so much theoretical research that comments on this as, you know, uh, this is really high stress, this is really high stakes, this will affect how people can work together. Um, but that empirical research is really lacking and that kind of working with end users and figuring out what's actually going on is, is really lacking. So a lot of the PhD was kind of how can we take all this theoretical work and how can we actually see how some of these sort of models might work in, in practice. Um, when you were doing that research, were you going into the wild to do this? Yeah, so um, I was really lucky to do uh, an, a brilliant study with the emergency services. So we were at one of their um, simulated training events. So this was with kind of senior commanders from across military, um, police, fire, ambulance, local governments. Uh, and we recorded their training exercise. So they were responding to a, a terrorist attack um, and we recorded their entire kind of interactions. So this was more like kind of strategic level decision making. So not people on the ground, people at the top kind of making those decisions. Um, and, and that was absolutely fascinating. And it's like, if you really want to understand how people are making decisions, then you want to go and talk and witness how they're making decisions in, I guess not situ because it's simulation, but as close to reality as, uh, as, as you can get. It was really interesting and, and great timing in the sense that, I mean, terrible timing in the sense that obviously the Manchester Arena terrorist attack was, 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 was an awful event. Um, but we were doing this research around that time. So it was, and when we look at the Manchester Arena attack, a lot of the outcomes were around this difficult 
difficulty between cross-agency working. So we've probably all seen the headlines around the fire service not turning up to the scene until a bit later. There was also a lot of headlines around kind of the pressure placed on the police commander to make decisions on the night. Uh, and this was very much what we were looking at. We were looking at kind of how do people communicate across agencies and how do they coordinate decisions as a group? Um, and very similar to the reports of the arena attack, we found that there is a lot of emphasis placed on one person, one agency, the police, and that communications end up being funneled through that one person. So they not only have to manage all the communications, but they also have to try and make all the big decisions. But when we look at kind of the emergency management frameworks, it's supposed to be joint decisions, distributed communications. Um, in terms of success then, is it presumably better when they have those more distributed decisions? Yeah, so that was kind of what we were we were reporting in our in our paper was that if we want to help with that kind of cognitive load on that one person, we need to think about how can we decentralise the communication structures. So for example, with the Manchester Arena attack, there was that comment around, well, how could the you know the police commander be on the phone to the fire service telling them where they should go when they're also on scene trying to direct people in the moment to respond to the incident mm. and it, it one person does not have the capacity to do that so if we have more decentralized structures that communication is getting passed along and moved along and someone's able to then focus on that decision making process and i think one of the real challenges is kind of it's all good to say this in practice but obviously it's really hard even with simulations to emulate that kind of severe pressure that we see in those moments um and i mean the the police commander made some excellent decisions some very dynamic some very good decisions and they were very much praised in that report but the key thing that kept coming up time and time again was this communication challenge and we see it across lots of different emergency incidents when we reflect back it's this idea of how can you maintain communication that shared awareness aspect that kind of being on the same page when we're also trying to deal with kind of decisions that will affect the moment the million dollar question have those findings fed back into the way in which the emergency services are being trained yes yeah, so that is something that we are kind of trying to work on so i know some colleagues of mine have recently got some funding to look specifically at training um, so we reported back uh, the findings at numerous different events, lots of workshops, lots of conversations with uh, both the police, but also the broader uh, emergency services. And I think uh, what's really exciting is that it echoes exactly with what they are thinking and what they are trying to do. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely something that I want to kind of work for more towards in the future is like what kind of specific training um, sort of regimes and practices will actually lead to behavioural changes. After your PhD, you moved to the University of Bath to take up a postdoctoral position that was also funded by Crest. Can you tell me a bit about that? The motivation for me working in academia was always wanting to work in a kind of broader counterterrorism space. Now, of course, the emergency services work is about counterterrorism in terms of in the moment. How do you respond to terrorism? Um, but my main passion has always been around kind of um, not necessarily radicalisation, uh, stages but more thinking about kind of extremism as a, a problem and extremism as a challenge and thinking about how we can kind of uh, research understand and respond to that uh, so when the postdoc position came up at Bath which was sort of touching on uh, right-wing extremism online and trying to understand kind of how we can link online behavior to offline behavior uh, I was just really really excited and it felt like a really natural next step it sounds like you place a lot of value on real-world data that's the yeah. right way to frame it. That's obviously been a conscious decision. 
yeah absolutely um i think i've always felt this i think since sort of undergraduate when you hear various lectures i was more most more inspired by the lecturers who are working in those kind of real world contexts and for me research has always been about yes we want that academic rigor we want to uh, advance our careers with with good publications and and, and that kind of rigorous research but if that research can't be used then it's not what's the point because research for research's sake is really important but i am personally more motivated by those real world outcomes so how can somebody use what what i've done and how can i see that um, impact on kind of real tangible things in the real world the government has recently just published the online harms bill a draft version and it speaks about trying to make the UK the safest place online to be. A lot of your work touches on that. Could you tell us a bit more about it? We've seen in recent years the um, increase in extremist content online. So people are now encountering some kind of extreme or, or hateful or potentially harmful content. Uh, while users under 30, about 40% of them are saying they're encountering it on a, on a regular basis. So we know that kind of extremist content has increased. We also know, um, specifically in my area, that, that the threat of right-wing terrorism is is increasing. So we've seen a lot of, I know that the, the, the jihadi-inspired attacks do still dominate but we are seeing more and more right-wing attacks so what we've got is this really interesting kind of intersection of the fact that kind of the extremist content's increasing the right-wing threat is increasing we know that right-wing terrorism is very much linked to the online space they use it to communicate to um, interact to recruit to plan attacks how do we disentangle those who are a genuine threat versus those who are just posting this extremist content without any intention of ever doing anything violent or any intention of ever leaving their bedroom almost with this content. And that was kind of the motivation behind much of the project that I'm working on at the moment is how do we identify those needles in a haystack? Uh, if we're looking for the most angry, the most hateful person, that doesn't necessarily mean that that person's going to get up tomorrow and leave the house and go and do something violent. Uh, we know that it's not as simple as that. So it's what can we learn from these online communications that can actually help us understand how to begin detecting uh, reliable risk signals. Uh, so that's very much the motivation behind, behind the project that I'm working on at the moment. You said it yourself, it's like a needle in a haystack. How, how, do you, how do you go about doing that when you've, you know, you've got lots of people online, but then only so many attacks in the year that are potentially right-wing driven? How, how, do you, how do you go about even getting near what the risks are? Lots of studies look at entire platforms of posting behaviours. So they might look at several million posts and try and understand kind of trajectories in posting or how can we build algorithms to detect hateful or extremist language. Now, as I've kind of already touched upon, this idea that um, the person who's posting the most hateful content is the most at risk, we know that that doesn't always hold true. So just building algorithms to detect hateful language isn't going to really be able to take take us on that next step to actually saying oh this person's more at risk of committing a violent offense versus this person so that was the kind of the key thing that i saw that was problematic with the area was that we can't just analyze millions of posts and try and detect hate we need to be able to start comparing against people who have been convicted of an attack versus people that are angry online very extreme but have never actually gone and done anything uh, so that was the kind of the main aim of this project so I set about on a kind of a year long effort, very much sort of putting my investigative journalist hat on to try and identify data that belong to convicted uh, right wing terrorists. So this involved uh, court reports, news reports, 
lots and lots of searching to try and get some online data from people who had actually been convicted of an attack. Eventually got there, ended up with um, about sort of uh, 27, 28 people that we could tie to a portion of digital data. And then we wanted to compare this data to people who are very much extreme but had never been convicted. So we had a comparison sample of about 55 people. So the aim was, you know, we've got about 200,000 posts. Can we look for differences in our convicted and our non-convicted extremists? And do you look at all those posts? So, uh, yeah, that has been a real challenge working in this space. So I actually qualitatively looked at 30,000 of the 200,000 posts. So going through post by post and looking for what kind of content was included in the post. Now, 30,000 posts is a lot to analyse on any sample, but going through line by line, and obviously there's a lot of racism, homophobia, truly awful language um, and I think you, you do have to build up resilience to mm. that um, I'm lucky to know a few other researchers in the right wing space who we can kind of touch base with and, and reflect on um, but yeah it's, it's really hard and it's really horrible content um, but it, it definitely kind of comes back to well what's motivating you and for me this is so important when you see how much of this content is out there and you see the potential threat and risk it, somebody has to look at this, somebody has to be doing research in this space so it's horrible, but it's it's necessary, I think. It sounds a little bit like not a million miles away from what social media companies claim they're doing to try and clean up what you know the internet, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you only realise when you start looking at it in detail, the pure kind of vastness of this. And I think you can see the challenges with trying to clean up this content because some of it might not come up in those sort of classic algorithms of hate speech because they're getting very clever now at talking about kind of very racist and very horrible topics. So it might not use language that you might typically associate with hate, but actually what they're saying is incredibly offensive and incredibly you know, awful and obviously completely unacceptable. But it might not contain those buzzwords that maybe social media algorithms are looking for. It sounds like there's a bit of a cat and mouse there between trying to keep ahead of the bad guys. The, the right-wing space or the online space in general is evolving all the time you know um the right wing uh, kind of extremist space in particular is very interesting because they've always been ahead of the curve with the internet so like in the 90s they were using um dating message boards to spread racist messages um, they then sort of moved on to specific platforms and forums much before many people in society did so they've always been very good at using the internet so we're kind of chasing it's not just chasing what they're saying it's also where they're putting that information as well yeah. So it's a te it's a technological race as well as a research question race. Yeah, it's it's a real challenge. So I mean, I I'm I'm lucky with our data in terms of it. It was really very much at a time where users were using the internet, but we've seen so many arrests in recent years linked to online posts that there is a concern now that that users will switch to to offline again or or even darker websites. So we're always trying to think about kind of how can we make what we do useful even if the landscape shifts because the landscape will shift and it has done, you know, over the last 10 years. Why is the why do you have to then read all the messages if it can all be automated? Yeah, so I think um, I feel very passionate about this in terms of my um, understanding now, um, I guess kind of dark in a sense of like the right wing online space is absolutely vast because I understand the nuances and the kind of the contextual specifics of that extremist group. So there might be some words that are used regularly that without that qualitative analysis, you might throw them out of the machine learning model because you're like, well, that has to just be noise. 
you know, mm. we'll take that predictor out because it clearly isn't relevant. But if you have that qualitative understanding, so you've gone through post by post, you generate that understanding and knowledge of what is important. And actually there are some things in our machine learning model that if someone looked at it blind, they'd be like, why on earth is that in there? You know, so I think you, you need that. I don't want to take our findings to, to government or law enforcement and say, you know, run this algorithm and it might help you identify who's at risk. I want to be able to sit down with them and explain exactly why I think that algorithm works based on my knowledge and understanding of what these forums look like. In terms of the work you do looking at content online, or extremist right-wing content online, what, what's the end impact of that work? So government agencies are battling with this challenge of how do we decide who to monitor? There obviously are finite resources. We can't monitor everyone. Um, not everyone poses a genuine security threat. So how do we decide where to direct those resources towards? Um, so in our work, we're trying to work collaboratively with government agencies to try and inform these prioritization strategies, to try and help monitor those people who need monitoring essentially so i always like to say that rather than finding a needle in a haystack it's about reducing the size of the haystack so reducing the amount of people that need monitoring um who are potentially going to pose a threat to public safety and at the other end from an ethical perspective it's also about making sure we're not monitoring people we don't need to monitor absolutely so there's definitely a kind of a two sides to that story around kind of um i obviously disagree with their right-wing extremist um and often horrendous views but that doesn't mean that we should be monitoring every single word that person says if they aren't demonstrating any risk to public safety or any sort of risk or potential of harm so how do we know who the people are that, that are genuinely require that, that close level of monitoring. And that speaks to those bigger societal challenges as well, doesn't it, about how do we police the internet? That's what the UK government are trying to navigate. And I think there's that understanding that there'll never be a reduction of um, in absolute harm of online spaces. The, the online space is too big. It, it's, it's evolving all the time. It, it's growing all the time. But if we can just get a little bit more of an understanding of what content is potentially most harmful or who is most likely to be harmed by that content, then we can start developing better interventions, better strategies. Um, I think that something that comes up time and time again, it doesn't matter who you're talking to in whatever government agency, from the police to the home office, or whoever it is, there is always this challenge around how do we identify risk online? Because, the, like you say, around this kind of government harms initiative, there is an absolute understanding and growing consensus that there is a lot of harmful content online. And we can't get rid of it all. How can we identify those people in that harmful space who are actually most at risk of doing something offline? And it's a huge challenge. Um, but if we can go some way or contribute towards that, then that would be very satisfying for me. Is the threat of far-right extremism growing? So interestingly, the actual arrests seem to have levelled off a little bit this year. I'm not sure if that's pandemic related or it could just be that that fever pitch has somewhat levelled out. Um, but what's really worrying is that the referrals to the Prevent programme, which is the government's kind of uh, anti-extremism, trying to intervene at terrorism at the early stage programme, is increasing all the time for far-right referrals and really sort of worryingly for under-16s as well. Um, so one of the things with the far right, this link with the internet, is that we're seeing younger and younger people getting involved with these groups via platforms like Instagram, um, Telegram, and, and that does not seem to be slowing down. 
Um, so in terms of that threat growing, if we're having more and more young people getting engaged in this space, then of course some of them will drop out, but you have to worry about where that will look in five years time when these individuals maybe get more capability or get more invested in the movements. Without getting too political, why do you think there is this rise in these referrals to prevent that are coming from the right wing? The right wing space has been absolutely bolstered by the pandemic. So there are lots of government reports at the moment around kind of how the far right is exploiting the pandemic. So this uncertainty, this anti-government, um, anti-authority sentiment has only kind of bolstered their groups and they are now expanding beyond these niche far right groups to these larger kind of anti-government groups and we won't know what the impact of that is for, for a long time to come. I know that the police did a report on the fact that teenagers spending so much time in their bedrooms if they come across these pages on Instagram then they're more likely to potentially go down that rabbit hole because they are you know stuck at home without anything to do but I think as we see the wider political climate polarised on both sides the, the problem is that if it goes one way then it'll pull the other way. Um, and I always see kind of it's amazing that we're having almost a moment of reckoning in terms of um, understanding and pushing for kind of better practices and policies around diversity and moving more towards that. But unfortunately, when that happens on the flip side of that, those that are opposed to that or indifferent to that are more likely to get pushed the other way. And I think that's what we are witnessing, unfortunately, on a, a large scale. I, I wondered if that also feeds into things like growing levels of inequality, cost of living crisis, economic stagnation. Absolutely, and it could. I think we we see particularly, I suppose, around the kind of uh, the COVID nineteen anti vax and uh, far right overlaps. A lot of that was around kind of anti government sentiment, and of course, the fallout of that now, as we see the cost of living rise, you know, why did we spend all that money on vaccines that we didn't need, and now we have no money for X, Y, and Z? So this frustration around kind of what authority represents and kind of where people sit within society is bubbling and it is growing, and unfortunately, when we see people in times of uncertainty in times of challenge they are more drawn towards those kind of more polarizing and extremist viewpoints mm. uh, so i think that there's a i'm very interested in kind of the absolute kind of far end of the far right in terms of potential terrorism but i'm also fascinated and well equal parts fascinated and horrified about this kind of coalescing of potential far right with potential anti-government with potential COVID concerns and how that will shape potentially in the next five years. You've done a huge amount of work in quite a comparatively short space of time in this area. What, what's next? Yeah, so I think for me, definitely um, this kind of not just specific to the COVID context, but how ideologies can coalesce based on a wider contextual factor. So we've had the pandemic and we see this kind of coming together of far right and anti-vaccine beliefs. How that happens and where that goes is something that I'm really, really interested in. So I obviously, as someone who monitors many different far right forums, seeing the rise in numbers, seeing how the far right have manipulated and exploited the pandemic is of real concern to me. And what I would love to do is kind of look at over time, what is the impact of that? So are we going to see a huge drop off or are we going to see kind of potential rising threats across time? I mean, what I found really fascinating was that when the Ukrainian Russian war broke out, Many of the people in those groups then pivoted towards, well, the government's lying about Ukraine, we should feel a bit sorry for Russia. So it almost seems that it'll flip from one issue to another. And I'd be really interested in kind of 
looking into this space, these coalescing of ideologies and working out what potential long-term impacts might be. Does all this research make you more cynical or forget that there's still good in people? Like, if you're looking at a lot of that content, how do you, how do you, well, first of all, how do you walk away from it and forget about it for some time? But also, how do you then remind yourself that there are good people? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely more cynical. Um, I think I've noticed that uh, whether it's reading a news report or, or looking at someone on social media, I always sort of start thinking, not the worst, but I'll always think, is there an angle on that? Or kind of what, what could be behind that? Um, and I think it does definitely make you more sceptical of various various things within the world. I mean, I think a big example for me was that um, much of the outcomes of the Black Lives Matter marches were really positive and it was fantastic to see awareness being raised. My main thought was, oh gosh, if this is all in the news, then what are the far right going to think of this? And, and what if they start doing counter protests, which they did just two weeks later? So I think it's like you're almost then expecting bad behaviour when good things happen because of that understanding that, well, you know, if something on that side of things is being promoted, then they might want to promote on the other side of things. So that can be quite hard of that kind of expectancy of rather than just enjoying something quite positive, you're already pre-thinking about a negative. Um, but I think the way in which I kind of stay, I guess, okay and mentally well around all of this is just reminding myself of the importance of doing the research in this space. And when you kind of see positive things happening, you really have to kind of hold on to that and, and, and be excited and be happy about that and, and, and be grateful that you're able to make a, a, a somewhat of an impact in that space because once you've opened Pandora's box and you know what's in there you're not going to forget what's in there so for me it's kind of well at least I can try and work towards helping and preventing it um yeah rather than just being on the outside of it it sounds like you're very much driven by trying to make a difference yes definitely that is uh, absolutely kind of what motivates me as a researcher thanks very much Liv for your time today it's been a real eye-opener it's also remarkable that you can, in a way, in an interesting way, end it on a sort of positive note by, despite the challenges, despite the seriousness of it, there is still a positive that can come out of a lot of this research. No, absolutely, and it's been a real pleasure to, uh, to talk with you today. It's been, it's been really enjoyable, so thanks very much for having me. You've been listening to the Research for Good podcast. If you want to learn more about Olivia's work, as well as other school of management research that focuses on making the world a better place, then visit the Research for Good page on the University of Bath website. You can find the link in the episode description.